If I were to ask you for a list of important spiritual practices, practices that make a difference to your own experience of the life of faith, I wonder what you might put on your list. I imagine you'd list things like prayer and Bible reading and worship because you understand that those activities help you connect more closely with God. You might list fellowship because you understand the importance of building relationships with other followers of Jesus. I wonder, though, how many of you would list financial giving as a vital spiritual practice. As I think about that, I find it interesting that Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart also is. You see, how we spend our money says so much about the condition of our heart. And because of that, financial giving actually is one of the most important spiritual practices for us to master. And the reality is this, if we're not giving anything financially to God, we are missing out on the best that he has for us. We are missing out on a key ingredient of the life of faith. However, if we're giving, but we're doing it joylessly, and we're giving out of a sense of duty, then we're also missing out on the best that God has for us. And either one of those approaches can cause us to settle onto a spiritual plateau. Can I have that slide, please? When we're on a plateau in our lives, everything is routine and everything is normal. And we're just doing what we always do without any sense of excitement or expectation. When we're on a plateau, there's, there's no growth, there's no change. We're not experiencing any of the new, rich things that God continually wants to bring into our lives. When we're on a plateau, it's not, it's not that it's bad, it's just placid. It's just unexciting. And God wants more for us than that. I've learned in my own life that one way off the plateau is to become a consistent, faithful giver of my finances. I've learned that when I give to God gratefully and with joy, there's a sense of expectation that follows. My trust in God deepens and my faith is energized. This is a lesson that my wife and I learned years ago because early in our marriage, Julie and I really struggled in this area uh, of the life of faith. And this morning, I want to share some biblical principles about giving from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 26. And then I want to share a piece of our story, because God used the principles from that passage of Scripture to transform us. He changed us from non-givers into givers. He caused us to become faithful people who give with a sense of purpose, not simply out of a sense of duty. So let's take a look at Deuteronomy 26 and see what God has to say to us today. Verse 1, when you have entered the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance and have taken possession of it and settled in it, take some of the first fruits of all that you produce from the soil of the land the Lord your God is giving you and put them in a basket. Then go to the place the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for his name. He's talking about the sanctuary. 
You take that basket, you take it there to God's house, and you say to the priest in office at the time, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come to the land, the Lord, excuse me, come to the land the Lord swore to our ancestors to give us. The priest shall take the basket from your hands and set it down in front of the altar of the Lord your God. Then you shall declare before the Lord your God. My father was a wandering Aramean, and he went down into Egypt with a few people and lived there and became a great nation, powerful and numerous. But the Egyptians mistreated us and made us suffer, subjecting us to harsh labor. Then we cried out to the Lord, the God of our ancestors, and the Lord heard our voice. The Lord heard our voice and he saw our misery, toil, and oppression. So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm with great terror and with signs and wonders. The nation of Israel is hearing these words after centuries of slavery. As slaves, their lives have been managed by others, which means they need help now to create an orderly society. And in the first few books of the Old Testament, God gives the Israelites civil instructions and judicial instructions and religious instructions to help them do just that, to know how to manage their lives and build an orderly and just society. And so he tells them things like, don't murder, don't steal. Tells them to place a high priority on family life and to nurture those relationships. He describes the importance of worship and how to live by faith. And in the midst of this myriad list of instructions, as we just read, God also says that he wants every one of his children to regularly give away some of their material resources. In other words, giving is not some afterthought from God. He doesn't mention this as an accessory to life but as a core element of a balanced life. Financial giving is essential for the well-being of individuals and the community. God wants his children to learn to give. Now, as we read this, we need to understand that these instructions were binding on Israel. They were commands to Israel. They're not binding on us because we don't live under Old Testament law. Nevertheless, there are key principles here that we can incorporate into our own lives. There are principles here that can apply to all of God's people in every generation. And the first principle we learn from this passage is that giving should not be approached as a duty or an obligation. God wants giving to be an act of joyful worship. We can do that when we understand that everything that we have is a gift from God. He simply asks us to take some of what he's given to us and offer it back to him as an expression of our gratefulness. And as we bring our gifts to God, we thank him for who he is and what he's done for us. And just as he brought Israel out of darkness and misery and slavery, he's also done that for us. He has brought us out of the misery of spiritual darkness. He is the God who has set us free from slavery to sin. And he did so with signs and wonders through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And when we give financially, we give to worship our great God who has set us free. 
Now this passage describes worshipers physically bringing their gifts to the altar of God, a a basket full of grain or food or something from the harvest. That's obviously changed in our modern world. And today people give in all kinds of ways. Some of you write checks or bring cash and you put it in the treasury box at the back of the auditorium. Some of you use online banking. Others like me prefer to use the church's mobile digital giving app. We use our smartphones to make our financial contributions. But the fact is that really doesn't matter. The method of giving is far less important than the attitude of giving. If we're giving to God grudgingly, or if we treat our gifts to God with the same attitude that we have when we pay the utility bill, we've kind of missed the point. You see, whenever we give, however we give, our experience will be enriched if we give with the same kind of thankful attitude that we see expressed here in this passage. As we give, we thank and honor God for who he is and for what he has done for us. We give as a way to express our worship to a gracious and loving God. That's the first principle. And then there's another principle Julie and I learned from this passage. And in my view, I think it's the most important one. It's mentioned here in verses 1 to 8, and it's also highlighted in verses 9 to 11. It's the principle of first fruits. Verse 9, he brought us to this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And now I bring the first fruits of the soil that you, Lord, have given me. Place the basket before the Lord your God and bow down before him. Then you and the Levites and the foreigners residing among you shall rejoice in all the good things the Lord your God has given to you and your household. First fruits. The idea is this. Giving to God is so much more meaningful when we give to him first before we set aside anything for ourselves. And that's meaningful because it represents a dramatic shift in our priorities. And it's also very meaningful because it's not easy to do. Give to God before I pay the rent or the mortgage? Give to God before I stock the pantry with groceries? Yes. That's what God is asking. He asks that of us because it's an expression of trust. And the more we learn to trust God, the more our faith will be enriched. And it actually goes even deeper than what we just read because there are other Bible passages that shed light on what we just read and amplify our understanding of it. And first, when you give to God and you give to him first, that offering is supposed to be a tithe, which means 10%. And second, when you give that tithe to God, it's supposed to be from your best stuff. So if you were a faithful Jew and you read this command and you wanted to put it into, into practice, then you would take 10% of your best seed or your best produce or your best animals and you'd give that to God before you took anything for, your, for, for yourself. And let's be honest, humanly speaking, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Logic says 
that your best produce will bring the highest price in the market, that you should keep your best seed to plant next year's crop, that your best animals probably will make your best breeding stock. To be a good steward of that, you should keep all of that and use it for yourself, right? Nope. (laughs) It's not what God says. He says, are you willing to trust me by giving away your best and giving it to me first? You see, it reinforces the idea that we don't give God our leftovers. The Heavenly Father here is asking his children to do something that does not come naturally. And he asks that so we can learn to live by faith. And so as the Jews embraced this practice, they discovered that there was a powerful byproduct in their lives. They would give their best to God, and they'd give give it to him first, which meant they then were giving at the same times or seasons. It's time to sell the herd. Give your gift. The crops just came in. Time to give the gift. All of that established a rhythm to their giving. And their giving became a regular, healthy, spiritual practice. And the same thing can be true for us. In our culture, we typically don't receive offerings today in the form of agricultural products. It's been a while since I've seen someone put some produce in the treasury box. But the principle still holds true. And in our money-driven, sometimes money-obsessed culture, it is a significant act of faith to give some of it away. And when you and I give to God first, and we do it consistently rather than randomly, and we don't give to him out of what's left over, we're making a huge statement about our our trust in God, and we're saying, God, I'm giving you my best. And I'm trusting you more than my bank account. And as we do this, then we, like our Jewish spiritual ancestors, experience the benefit of establishing a consistent pattern to our giving. If we have income from a job or investments or social security or other sources and we always give to God first whenever we receive our income, then the financial rhythm of your life and mine begins to change. And over time, we start to see money more as a servant and less as a master. And giving becomes an ongoing spiritual practice for us like other spiritual practices, such as Bible reading and prayer and worship. The more consistently we give, the more natural it becomes, the more joyful it becomes, and the more satisfaction we find in investing in the kingdom of God. I believe that when we choose to give to God first, that's when things really begin to change because we are making a fundamental shift in our priorities. Give to worship. Give to God first. And then there's one other principle in this passage that God lays out for his people. He wants them to give to be generous. Be generous in order to care for others. Verse 12. When you have finished setting aside a tenth of all your produce in the third year, the year of the tithe, 
You shall give it to the Levite, the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that they may eat in your towns and be satisfied. Then say to the Lord your God, I have removed from my house the sacred portion and have given it to the Levite, the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, according to all you have commanded. I have not turned aside from your commands, nor have I forgotten any of them. As I mentioned a moment ago, the the basic offering that God established for the Israelites was the tithe. And yet we need to understand that the tithe was just a starting point. Here we find another special tithe that was collected every three years for the priests and for needy people within the community. And it's kind of interesting, back in that ancient land and in that ancient time, as we understand, most people earned their living from the land. Yet when God brought Israel into the promised land and he apportioned the land among the people, the Levites who served as the priests did not get any land. They had no means to raise their own crops and their own food. So why did God do that? Well, one, he wanted the priests to be focused exclusively on their spiritual duties without the distraction of other work. And two, he wanted the people to to feel a sense of responsibility for supporting those who provided for their ongoing spiritual life. And then in addition, God wanted the people to feel a sense of responsibility for those in their midst who had needs. Foreigners, orphans, widows. And so above and beyond their regular giving, God is saying, I want you to do more you to be generous. And as we consider this, I think we need to be honest and recognize that at times our human instinct is to be stingy. <laughs> we like to keep what we have. We like to hold firmly on to what we've got. I've even had people sometimes say to me, not as directly as I'm about to say it, but they've kind of implied, so what's the minimum I can give and still be on good terms with God? by these instructions, God is pushing against that inherent selfishness that we all often struggle with. He wants to cultivate within the community of faith a spirit of generosity, a spirit of willing generosity where we lovingly take some of what God has given to us and we use it to invest in the lives of other people, to go beyond minimums and enthusiastically do more because we see value in being generous. And I find that when I open up my hands and I live generously with my money, it enables me to help other people and it also changes me for the better. Financial generosity helps me to increasingly become the man that God wants me to be. And so God gives us here three foundational, powerful principles about giving. We give as an expression of worship. We give to God first. And we give to be generous. And as we do that, giving moves beyond a duty and becomes a purpose-filled part of our lives. It becomes this spiritual experience where we thank God and we care for others and we invest in the mission of God's kingdom. And as we give consistently, our attitude about money 
and material things changes. And when we loosen our grip on our money and we give in the way that God asks, we find that over time we actually become less and less anxious about our finances. And so for all of these reasons, financial giving is a foundational spiritual practice. And yet, as important as it is, many believers struggle. They find it one of the most difficult spiritual practices to learn. And we struggle for many reasons. One is that sometimes we're prideful about what we earn. And we're prideful about the things that we can buy with our money. And therefore, it's a humbling act to give some of it away. Giving is difficult because it requires us to humble ourselves enough so that we trust God more than our assets. For Julie and I, embracing the spiritual practice of giving wasn't easy. We were married right after college, and I went into business, and Julie became a teacher, and for the first time, we had money, and we enjoyed spending it. We had some college loans to pay off, but we also found that in the mail regularly was arriving invitations to sign up for charge cards. We got a number of them, and we used them aggressively, and we just added more and more to our debt load. And we reached a point where money was tight. There was not much left over. And we had never, ever learned how to give to the work of the kingdom of God, to give back to God. From time to time, we'd go into church and we'd hear a sermon on tithing and we'd be consumed by guilt and then we'd try and give and that effort would quickly fall apart. We would fail. And there's a logical reason why. If you've never been a giver, to suddenly carve 10% out of the family budget is not easy. So we were struggling, but we weren't content. We didn't like this. We knew that giving was a vital spiritual practice that we had to get a handle on. We knew that if we did not learn how to submit our finances to God, we would miss out on so much of the good that God had in store for us. We realized we were stuck on a plateau, and we did not want to stay there. And so rather than leap into tithing, which never seemed to work, We tried a different approach. By the way, a word about tithing. Tithing is an Old Testament concept. It was commanded for the Jews. It's a guideline for us. The New Testament doesn't give us any amount. I think a tithe is a great starting point. And I believe that as we learn to give, God can move us beyond that. But I don't think you start with a percentage. Julie and I looked at this passage, and based on these principles, we decided for us the key thing that would change our attitude and our life was to give to God first. We needed to be able to establish a pattern of consistent and faithful giving. But how do you give to God first when you don't have a lot of money and you're racked with bills? We had failed so often, we decided to position ourselves for success, so we we chose an extremely small amount. We said we're going to give $5 per week to God wasn't much, but it, we, it was small enough that we couldn't rationalize it away. We knew we could give it faithfully, 
And again, following the guidelines of this passage, we said we will give this as an act of worship. And as we give it, we will thank God and will honor him for his goodness to us. And so we got paid on Fridays, and then every Saturday I would cash $5, and on Sunday we'd put it in the offering at church. And as we did, we said, thank you, God. Thank you for meeting our needs. Thank you for providing for us. Thank you for who you are and what you continue to do in our lives. And within a few weeks, we started to feel like we were getting into this rhythm. We get paid. We cash the money. We pray and thank God. We put it in the offering. And because of that rhythm, things began to change within us. And we did that faithfully for about three months. And I have to tell you, at the end of that time, we felt like spiritual giants. (laughs) For the first time in our lives, we were regularly, consistently giving to God. And yes, it was a tiny amount, but we actually were beginning to live out some of God's basic financial principles. We were giving to God as an act of worship. We were giving to God first. And our attitude about money was beginning to change. And I got so excited, I said to Julie, let's double our giving. (laughs) So we upped it to $10 a week. And a few weeks later, we bumped it to $15 a week. Now, remember, at this point, we were carrying a lot of debt. We didn't have a lot of extra money. And so as we slowly ratcheted up our giving, we had to evaluate and prioritize our other expenses. This process of incrementally increasing our giving helped us to better learn over time how to live within our means. And we reached the point where we were giving 5% of our pay and we kept on and every few months we kept increasing our giving a bit until eventually we did reach 10%. And by this time we were out of debt, our financial situation was much better and we were able to start participating in special offerings that our church would have from time to time. In other words, giving above and beyond the tithe, giving to be generous. We even started to give to ministries outside the church. Our hearts were particularly touched by what God says here about caring for needy, hurting people. People who are fatherless, for example. And we prayed about that. We found an organization that takes care of children in desperate need. And we sent the check off to them every month. And so for us, the tide became not a maximum, but a minimum, as God prompted us to be generous beyond that basic amount. So here we were, we were working, making a decent living, out of debt, into a giving plan, things were just flowing really smoothly, and then God brought a dramatic change to our lives. He pulled me out of business, he pulled Julie out of teaching, and he called us into ministry. Ministry where pay scales are just a little bit different than they are in the marketplace. My first year in ministry, our family income dropped by almost 50%. And yet, by that time, giving to God was such a consistent, regular part of our lives that we just continued on. We could not imagine life without giving to God first, without giving to God as an expression of worship, without giving to be generous. And so, yes, there was some dramatic financial reshuffling of our lives that we just continued to press on, as we've now continued for many years, to open up our hands, to give faithfully and generously, 
And God always meets our needs. Our God is faithful. He doesn't indulge all our wants, but he meets our needs. And we need to understand that unless we're one of the privileged few who happen to be inordinately wealthy, consistent giving does involve some trade-offs. There likely will be things that you do without. What Julie and I have learned, though, is that, that there's deep joy and satisfaction in giving to God. And it supersedes the temporary joy of money and stuff. We love giving to God as an expression of our thanks, as an expression of our trust. We love giving our tithes and offerings to this church, knowing that we are investing in a ministry which supports all of us in the life of faith, knowing that we're investing in a church which is striving to make a difference in the lives of people locally and regionally and globally. And the church needs money to function, but that's not what giving really is all about, not at the core. As we see here in Deuteronomy, giving is about you and about me and our own journey of faith. There is great purpose in our giving because as we learn to give, it helps us to become ever more humble and trust in the provision of God. So we give to worship give to God first. We give to be generous. And when we give according to these principles, God can and he will move us off the spiritual plateau. We will find new energy and excitement and enthusiasm and anticipation in our lives as we watch to see what God will do with our spiritual investments in his kingdom. And here's what I've found more than anything. As we loosen our grip on our money, God will increase his grip on us and he will keep us firmly in his care. He will never let us down.